This is exactly right. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And happy Valentine's Day, Danielle. Happy Valentine's Day. I actually, um, I know that we, our theme is val- Valentine's Day as we would do it, but I also have a little game for us to play <laughs> that I came up with. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm very intrigued. In the, In the spirit of the season. So... The rules of this game is that you have to guess what my answer would be. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to give you some options, and then you have to guess what my answer would be. Okay, okay. All right, and the game is serial killer or self-care? Serial killer or self-care? Yeah. Okay, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm having to inhabit your being and your thought processes. Okay. Exactly. And then Got we could it. talk about our answers. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. First ever game of serial killer or self-care. Okay. <laughs> First entry. Rubbing moisturizer on your legs. Serial killer or self-care. This is you talking, right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like I would say serial killer. Absolutely serial killer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> For you, that's true. For me, I've, no. But I've started moisturizing, and every time I do, I'm like, this feels like a real serial killer move. <laughs> like, let's get let's get this lady ready for me to take this skin off. <laughs> but legs, it seems a little bit more common than like, I mean, as we know, a moisturized face, an overly moisturized face is definitely some serial killer shit, right? Yes. But you just feel that way generally about like any moisturizing. Yeah, anytime I moisturize, I'm just like, this feels real serial killerish to me. You're getting the skin supple. For, just getting uh, it prepped. Transfer. Getting it prepped for Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so we got one down and I've gotten it right. One for one. Out. Yes. Now, the next entry is a real thing. Serial killer or self-care, menstrual blood face masks. Using your own period as a face mask. Now, weirdly enough, because I'm you thinking about it, I feel like that's self-care. Nope, total serial killer. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Serial killer move. You're using... I, I mean, look, you know I'm a hippie. You know I'm using my diva cup. You know, like, I I... Absolutely, am not afraid of period blood. I'm not rubbing it on my face. Okay, but see, that's that's what threw me off is because you're so, you know, footloose and fancy free with the diva cup shit that I was like, oh well, she may not even mind to have that anywhere, like just out in the world. So, oh, <laughs> as it turns out, it's it, you actually think it's for serial killers only. I think so. it's. I think that's like a, a, a an entry level serial killer move. Okay. Like, you start with period blood, and then you're like, why don't I just get some more blood? What other kind of blood can I get on this face? And the next thing you know, you're killing your roommate. Oh, my God. I saw... What's the movie that I... I literally just saw this movie. Is it 
the worst person in the world. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it yet. There's a I think that there's a moment where period blood gets smeared on a face. So maybe that's where it started because it then became a TikTok thing. It did? Yes. Whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Back the fuck up. Yes. What are you talking about? It is a TikTok thing, and I the reason I even knew about it is I read an article, I think it was on The Cut or something, that was like, is this hygienic? Like, well, we have a dermatologist weigh in on whether or not you should be rubbing your period blood on your face. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, is this, a, this is a thing? It's a big enough thing to write an article about for The Cut? Wait a second. Okay, so in the movie... It's it, it's like a warrior like thing where she just I think it just like it's applied like under the eyes like uh, an outfielder in baseball right. or something <laughs> like that like is that what they're doing is it just no. like a couple of little streaks or is it like an entire mask this face? is a full fucking clown makeup mask base of period blood oh my god what. This is why I'm not on TikTok. Okay, I gotta say, this is exactly why I don't get on TikTok. Because I'm like, I don't even know what the hell is going on. It's like a wild west in that app. It truly is bonkers over there. It's bonkers. But yeah, that's a total serial killer move. Okay. So we're, we're yes. one for two. Yes. I, I'm just shocked that it's a TikTok thing anyway. Oh my God. All right. Oh yeah. When we, when we stop recording, you're going to read about it and... <laughs> It's gonna break. Hell yeah, I am. <laughs> All right, entry three: serial killer or self care? Okay. Green vitamin powder, like the kind of shit they try to sell sell me on Instagram all the time. Green vitamin powder that you can like drink with water or add to a shake. Are all of these going to be serial killer? I feel like they no. will all be serial killer things. No, they will not all be serial killer. Okay. Okay. Okay, then maybe I will I will go the other way and say self-care. No, serial killer. Damn! <laughs> God damn! I sensed a, a sensed a hint of judgment <laughs> in your voice as you were saying it, and then I still decided on going the other way, and it fucking failed. My strategy failed. You got you you played yourself. You played yourself. <laughs> you gotta go with the gut. <laughs> So you're, so you're now saying that drinking green vitamin powders is for serial killers? Yes, for several reasons. Prim primarily that it feels like the kind of thing that somebody would prep if they're just trying to keep you alive long enough. Like, you, they, you would lower a green vitamin powder, powder, powder drink, like, down a well and be like, this is your meal for the day. And that's what it feels like every time Instagram is trying to sell me athletic greens is like... You better fucking stay, <laughs> keep that scurvy at bay because we need you for <laughs> for killing later. <laughs> you think that Buffalo Bill is is lowering down like matcha powder to like that lady and her dog Absolutely. down there? Absolutely. Really? If, athletic, if athletic greens existed or if any of these green powder drinks existed when Buffalo Bill was doing his thing as a fictional character, but even real life serial killers, I feel like his M.O. was so specific, like he was looking for people based on size. So he's sure. like, I'm going to put you in this well, but I don't need you or want you to lose any weight because I need that skin to be a certain size. See, I, I feel like 
So I feel I don't know. I I have the, uh, we maybe we need to make a uh, distinction between country serial killers and city serial killers. But the ones that I've heard about in movies and whatnot, I feel like they're all about like ham hocks and things like like I'm like oh powders suddenly now they're they're oh, they're feeding the, their captured powders and vitamins and things it's cheaper than a ham hock and it's quicker than a ham hock you just need some water you're like there's a hose right next to you here's some fucking powder go ape shit you can have as much powder as you want you think Le- you think leatherface was fucking with like collagen and uh <laughs> with like whey proteins and shit I mean, he is a power lifter after all. So Le- maybe. Le- oh, Leatherface 100% has a case of muscle milk in his fucking house. <laughs> Modern day Leatherface has a case of muscle milk in that house, throwing some fucking green powder in there. <laughs> be like, let me just keep you. I need to chop off an arm, but I'm not taking the whole body yet and I don't want you to bleed out. So let's keep, make sure that those fucking statins stay up. Okay. <laughs> See, if it was like Green a powder is serial killer. Okay. I I I I'm I understand. I'm trying to look, I'm starting to get the vibe a little bit of what this, this game <laughs> is. So hopefully I can redeem myself since I've gotten two wrong in a row. You got two more. It's best Ooh. of five. Okay. And we'll and we will play this game again because I have several entries. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. So the ne- the fourth, the fourth entry in serial killer or self-care. Owning more than 10 pets. Oh, that's easy. Serial killer. Nope, self-care. What the fuck are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I feel like five is serial killer. Like five pets is serial killer. But then once you cross over that hump, then you're just like a sanctuary. <laughs> You're just like, I'm like in this life now. This is my part-time job is saving pets, saving animals. Oh my God. <laughs> so like five and under, between three and five, you're entering serial killer territory. But over five pets, I feel like that's a purpose. Like you've given yourself a purpose in life. Okay, I kind of don't agree with you on on this because I really do not understand the fine point between five and six even. Like, five dogs versus six dogs. <laughs> five dogs, you're a fucking maniac. Six dogs, you're like, I don't know, you're doing good for the world. I feel like it comes down to, like, the smell and the level of shit. And at five, I feel like... You've just been collecting because you're sad. Like, you're depressed and you're like, God, another dog would just make me so fucking happy. All I need is another ferret. But then at six, you're like, all right, I got to get my shit together because I, to, I have to take the time to take care of all these animals now. I got to say, and, then, and then, like, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not trying to piss off the cat owning lobby. Trust me. I do not want that kind of pain. But I feel like at least if you've got five dogs, Okay, dogs run in packs, right? You could potentially be like, you know, an Iditarod driver or something like that if you've got five dogs. If you have five cats, five or more cats, ten cats, I don't know. Like, that seems more, that seems in the serial killer vein more than having like five, ten dogs. Am I wrong about that? 
No, I feel you. From from your perspective, I feel you. From my perspective, it's absolutely self-care. You think anything under five, three to five, the three to five window <laughs> is so fascinating to me. <laughs> and this is, <laughs> it's very personally based because I'm considering getting more pets. And so I'm like, all right, knowing how I already am, like I'm alone in the woods and I have one cat. That is whimsical. But if I get another cat and a dog, people are going to start looking at me like, oh, she has given the fuck up on her life. Like, she is now entering this space where she's going pet heavy instead of dealing with her emotions. No, I think, okay, here's here's what I think. Now that we're talking about this, we got to chop this up because now I'm fucking can't stop thinking about it. Three to five animals with a collection of cats and dogs seems completely reasonable to me. Like, I'm right. like, oh, you've got two cats and a dog. Great. You've got th- two dogs and two cats. Okay, that seems fine. To me, it's kind of like, okay, when you're starting to get into, like, five cats, three dogs, two squirrels, a raccoon, and, you know, a fucking groundhog. Like, that, when you start getting, like, that variety in there, you start upping the total, that, to me, feels like, okay. Like, I mean... I get what you're saying about it possibly being, like, Snow White-esque to have, like, a coterie of animals and they're all, like, in perfect harmony or whatever. But, like, I don't... I just think the interesting thing that you've you've just shared with us is that three to five total animals is serial killer territory. As a single woman who lives alone in the woods, imagine this. I meet someone. We have a great date. We're going out. It's time for you to come back to my house one day. And I haven't told you anything about how I live. You come back to my house, and all of a sudden you see a cat. And you're like, all right, cool, a cat. And then you see another cat. And then you see another cat. And then you see a dog. And then you see another dog. I I think that's one too many dogs. Like, my parents had four cats at one point. They had four cats. which And we know your dad probably killed someone. He was in the military. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> serial killer man he fucking Ben Gazzard somebody out choked him out um <laughs> actually he did. we all know he didn't he was a boring office guy your dad um, was like a total desk guy and I'm like he killed somebody right because he was in yes. the military <laughs> no but that's like that's definitely like a more interesting story he would probably love to tell that story <laughs> He's like, I'm a fucking maniac with four cats. I'm completely unpredictable, man. Like, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. <laughs> Instead, he's just like, just oh, the God. most boring guy to ever live. But Instead, he's like, I filed. You know what I did right. today? I filed. I filed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went home the, and I handed out my four cats. <laughs> yeah. But the four cats thing was totally like, it was just, uh, you know, like he inherited two cats from a family member and then he ended up getting two of his own cats. Okay, I, I can't even. See, it now that you're better. talking it through, now that you're talking it through, you're like, yeah. dad was on the brink. But if he had gotten like two more cats, so if he had six cats, I would still think that was crazy. I wouldn't be like, oh, my dad. He's like a a male Snow White. Like, <laughs> But, and maybe maybe I should add the caveat of, what if he was single? Oh, well, God. Okay. See? That changes pretty much everything. That's the caveat then. Like, you're single and you own three to five pets. And single people listeners who have three to five pets, you don't need to write in. (laughs) I know. This is not a personal judgment. 
This is me just basing. <laughs> just we're, we're, basing. We're, we are you. Just we're not being this. mean girls. We are you. We are you. Like, I'm not judging you. I'm judging me. If I had three to five pets, I feel like I would be real close to being like, well, anything's possible. The fucking wheels are off of this life. This is incredibly fascinating. This game, <laughs> we have to play this game all the time because it feels like it's just like cracks open your psyche in a way that we've never we've never done before on this podcast. I want I want so. to play this again, but I want you to come up with some entries too. Oh god. <laughs> I, I definitely have more, but I want you to come up with some yes. entries. Well, okay, so I've gotten everything wrong but one. But you got one more chance. Okay, one more chance to One more chance to earn some points. Yeah, I got to get like 20%, 40%. I know you can do it. I know you can do it. Because our last entry in Serial Killer or Self-Care is owning a single solitary plant. Self-care. Serial Killer. Okay, you said! Okay! (laughs) Yeah, owning a single solitary plant, Serial Killer territory. Why don't you have more plants? Get more plants. If you like plants, if you have a plant that you've been able to keep alive and you like it, get another one. It is not hard. You can get them at the grocery store. And if you have a single solitary plant that's on the brink of death, you've already killed someone. This is so if you're just fucking... If you're, like, just keeping it alive every couple of months, you remember to, like, drop some water in there, and it's just, like, got one leaf and it's just hanging on by a thread, I think you've already killed someone. Look, I... This one, I gotta say, this point, I agree with you. I actually <laughs> totally see why to eye on this. Because I'm like, yeah... One plant means that you're like, can I do this type? Like, you're Mm -hmm. just sort of like either I have to put a plant in here so that people don't think I'm a serial killer. Right. Or I'm I'm a murderous person and I need to prove it to myself that I can keep one thing alive. Exactly. So I get it. I get I get what you're saying. I don't. No, like one plant, I could, I can never, I could never. Who the fuck can only have one plant? One plant is sus. Yeah, I'm just, it's, it's sus on several levels, several levels. But for me, it also brings in the question of, have you killed? <laughs> if you have one plant, have you committed a crime? Okay, let me ask you this then. What is the one plant that makes you the most serial killery? A figly fern. <laughs> if you're keeping a fucking fig leaf fern alive and hanging on by the edge of death, that is a serial killer move. You are absolutely on your way. I think it's a pothos. I think it's like one of those plants you see in the middle of office buildings that they don't even need real light, like the fucking artificial overhead lights. Some They like stay alive. In the, they stay alive in... A crypt. They're like those yeah. types of plants. I feel like if you have a pothos, that means that you're like, you're trying to prove something, mm-hmm. but it's like that thing where you're like, well, this thing is going to stay alive no matter what you do. So that doesn't even really count. It doesn't prove anything. And a pothos, especially when they get really, like when you don't prune them and they get really long and they just have like those five foot tendrils that you're just like hanging up with thumbtacks and shit. Yeah. You have killed. Oh, Yeah. There's, it's like, it, can we get real science fiction with those Thank tendrils? You. Well, this game has been absolutely fucking fascinating. <laughs> we'll do it again. I have another round. I want you to prep around so I can get into your psyche. 
But that's where I'm at with serial killer or self-care. We got one self-care. Everything else is a serial killer move. See, I was expecting it to be entirely serial killery, but I didn't... <laughs> that 10 pets thing threw me for a fucking loop. The 10 pets really threw you. <laughs> My God. Well, this, is, this has been a fascinating <laughs> game. Thank you for bringing it to the podcast. I cannot wait to play it again, honestly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And speaking of (laughs) wild, wild territory. Wild, wild territory. Um, This is definitely our, our most bonkers theme of 2023 so far, possibly the whole year it's it's the most bonkers theme of our the first half of our year for sure yes so as we alluded to at the very beginning of the episode it is valentine's day i think you know what's gonna happen we have a valentine's day themed episode but it has a very special name that danielle henderson came up with why don't you tell them what the name of the theme is this week so our theme this week is they don't get it and they don't have to that's right. What would you say is what what characterizes the theme? Like what what are these movies um about for the theme? We were looking to showcase relationships that are so out of sync with what we would normally see on this kind of day where it's like, you know, your cishet couple um, going out with, like, flowers and dinner and wine and I'm like, "Oh, but what about the rest of the world where that is not?" their MO on Valentine's Day or any day where they spend most of their relationships screaming. And this kind of came up for me based on some old neighbors I used to have. Like, if you've ever lived next to a couple that fights, it is eye-opening Yeah, about the human fucking psyche. Yeah, it's like, remember when we were talking about how it was on a, a, a episode from a while ago about those couples that you would know in your 20s that fought constantly, but then yes. they just stayed together forever. Yes. And you're just like, I don't question it. They have some kind of, there's some kind of thing that keeps them in the relationship and you just got to let it go, try yep. to figure it out, right? And I'm like, I don't get it, but maybe I don't have to get it. Yeah. And maybe they're telling us that. They're communicating to everybody in their lives like, they don't get us and they don't have to, right? Because we're we're in our own like little universe. And so... If it's weird to everybody else, oh well. And this this also came up for me because I've been doing I'm I'm writing a novel and I've been doing some research and watching a lot of intervention. Oh yeah. And there are so many couples on intervention that I'm like, why are y'all together? Why are you doing this? Why do you have kids? What's going on here? Yeah. Like aside from the disease and the illness of the drugs or the addiction, like take that out of the mix. Even when you're sober, why are you together? Yeah. You know. I think I told myself, like, after I turned 40, that I was no longer going to question the marriages of the people in my life. Because I don't want to know. That shit is dark as fuck. Every marriage is dark. I don't care who you are. 
I don't care if you're Chrissy Teigen and John Legend or whoever, like a famous <laughs> married couple that do businesses together. Like th- that marriage is dark. Every marriage is dark. I look, I want to dig into this for seven hours. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, to me, partnership is partnership is complicated. It doesn't matter who you are. Like when you decided to like become a part of a unit with someone, there's mm-hmm. always going to be certain things that aren't perfect. And there's always going to be a lot of concessions that people make to be with another person. Right. Right. So in, I think for a long time, I used to question couples that I knew or even celebrity couples. Let's get serious, which is sad, but you know what I mean? It's like, like all relationships are complicated. And I used to really be like, why is that person with this person? Can't believe they're together. Why does her boyfriend do this? Why is his, her girlfriend, you know, whoever, whoever it is. I was always like obsessed with the logic of it or something. And then now I'm like, I don't want to know. I like y'all, if y'all have figured out how to stay together throughout the fucking shittiness of this world and you're somehow functioning, God bless you. I don't want to know how you do it. I love that you're like (laughs) together and functioning is the baseline. I don't even care if you're happy. I just will stop at together and functioning. Well, I mean, functioning in that you still call somebody your partner or your husband or whomever. Like, it's like, if oh, if God. that if you're like t- technically together and that you managed that somehow, God bless you. I I don't want to know though. That's the thing is because it's always dark as hell. It is dark. Absolutely. And look, I'm I'm here to tell you that I think it's completely normal when you're a single person to look at couples and be like, how did that happen? Or just questioning it, even for yourself, like, what would I need to do to get into that relationship or, like, that kind of relationship? And every time I question it, I'm like, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be questioning this because I know the answer. Yes. And I don't want to have these judgments. And Yes. And, I, and trust me, I do know couples that are so great and fun and equal and there's all this, you know, like, you're like, what is making it work? How is they're perfect? How is their marriage or relationship perfect? I'm like, nah, bitch. That shit is dark, too. Everybody. It goes the other way. Like, when I see a great couple, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if it... Then I'm like, no, I can't go down this road because there's no answer. There's no rhyme or reason for why people get together, why they stay together. In any iteration, happy, sad, you're having buccal fat removed, you're having... Like, whatever it is that's happening in in a couple, I don't get it and I don't have to. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people get together because they were both attacked by bison. Separately. <laughs> okay, but I do love stories like that. Yeah, I like, do too. Like, we were on a fucking cruise, and then all of a sudden, a whale came up and, like, docked itself on the fucking boat and chomped off one each of, each of our left legs. And then while we were recovering in the hospital, we fell in love. Like, I love that shit. But I still don't get it. I still don't get it. I know, but if you dig deep enough, you will at some point find that the the people that had the most meet-cute opportunity, one of them likes weird porn and the other person pretends to ignore it. And you're like, one person has like bad manners or something. You know, it's just like, that isn't what I'm talking about. It's just sort of like, I don't want to know that stuff because it's just like, everybody has it. Nobody's perfect. And I feel like in these two movies, right, the dysfunction is out there like they're like we're this is who we are 
I think the thing that unites our movies is that they're both, like, all participants are high-key emotional in a yeah. way that's, like, kind <laughs> of kind of hilarious. Like, even in my movie, that's not technically a comedy, but it's not theatrics. It's like the theatrics of, of, of relationships, right? Yes. Absolutely. I was thinking about that, too. Like, what's... Not beyond the theme, like what's connecting our feel, and I think that is you—you you nailed it. Like it is yeah. the high key emotionality of these characters, and how that is something that brought them together. Even if it's not the thing that kept that keeps them together, it's like that's what brought them together. Is they're both like we are on ten at yeah. all times. Yeah, your film—I hadn't seen it in a while. It is such a fucking classic. I just love every I love everything about it. It is yes. got great style. Uh, great f- acting, camera work, everything about it is so fucking fun and cool. And I think I have to give a little warning this week for my movie, for people who have not heard of the movie. It's I think it's it's an advanced level flick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I watched your film and then I was going to do a true double feature and, and I thought, okay, I hadn't seen your film in a while, but I know that my film will be a good chaser. Like, it'll lift lift me up at the end of what happened mm-hmm. after that. Your film was so much bleaker than I remember that I had to watch an episode <laughs> of Intervention to come up. <laughs> you had to that's watch how, Intervention. That's how dark. As a chaser. I had an Intervention chaser Jesus. for the shot that was your movie. But, oh my God, there was so much about it that I forgot. And you're right, it's not technically a comedy, but it's 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 out there. It is it's out a- there. Yeah, there are moments that are so absurd that it does make me laugh and I can't, I can't help that. I'll talk I'll talk about it when we get to my movie, but happy Valentine's Day. This is we're broken people who have decided that these are Valentine's Day movies. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> You're like happy Valentine's Day. Uh here's who we are. well let's get into it Uh, my film was written by the Coen brothers directed by Joel Coen and and it was released in 1987 and my pick is Raising Arizona give me that baby you warthog from hell I'll give a quick one sentence synopsis and then I'll really get into it Mm. Uh, my one sentence synopsis for Raising Arizona is a newly married couple with fertility issues decides to steal a baby and all hell breaks loose 100% 100% fact. That's how I can give you without ruining anything. Um, <laughs> this film is a fucking ride. And it must be said that this is the second film that the Coen brothers released after Blood Simple. So if you remember us talking about, about Blood Simple many episodes ago where we get into the Coen brothers and, and, and their whole oeuvre and just how much I love them and but imagine making Blood Simple and then they go so 180 and come out with Raising Arizona. And I think it's important to remember that because a lot of people think that uh, Miller's Crossing was their next film, but it wasn't. This was, and I think it completely flexed their skill set and it kind of showed that they were able to go in such a different direction, which for a second film... After something that, again, was so noir and dark as as Blood Simple, I think that's a really brave, weirdly brave move. And it was. it's also like this story is, you know, of Raising Arizona is so deeply layered and overlapping. And it's like, it's, it's as nonstop hilarious as it is thoughtful. 
So I really feel like this film, we're seeing them kind of break into a sprint in terms of like what they can do with their storytelling and who they are as storytellers. And I I love that. I yeah. love that this was their second film. There are lots and lots of great articles out there about the making of the film. I really liked one. I read this one art this one list on Screen Rant about like like 10 things you might not have known about the movie. And Nicolas Cage's character, H.I. McDonough, has a Woody Woodpecker um tattoo. And I always wondered about that. The way the Coen brothers conceptualized this film was as a live-action Looney Tunes film, and they char- they thought of this character as a live-action Woody Woodpecker, which I think is fucking fascinating. Yeah. And the soundtrack, which is, again, just as classic as the film, also kind of is meant to mimic that Looney Tunes energy. Yeah. So it's like the the yodel and the fucking uke and like just like really high pitched high energy. So I just I love little details like that. And when you think of it as a live action Woody Woodpecker, there are so many other things and other scenes in the film that become immensely more pleasurable. Yeah, when you think of it that way. Um, and the cast is great. So you've got Nicolas Cage playing H. I. McDonough. He is a repeat offender criminal. Um, who enters this movie in a way that I have never found Nicolas Cage to be more attractive than he was in this film. Yeah, I mean, between... Uh, this is like his, like, moonstruck, like, yeah. wild hair era. I look. It says a lot I, about me. It says a lot about me. Yeah. I, I, I definitely love tra- the trajectory of his look through, like, Valley Girl to... Yeah, Moonstruck to Raising Arizona. Although I think Moonstruck came out after. Yeah, it came out that. after this. Yeah, I definitely like the trajectory of like Valley Girl to Raising Arizona to Moonstruck. Like his '80s looks are so good, iconic. And he's and it, I think I just love his energy in this movie because he's so he's very high key, but he's also really like worn out at the same time. And I think a lot of that just translated through his look. So I just think that, like, the costuming and the way that this character looks is so important to who the character is. Yeah. Um, Holly Hunter, again, incredible actress. She was originally um, who they went to to play uh, the Frances McDormand role in Blood Simple. And she wasn't available. And Frances McDormand, she's like, oh, like, you should cast my roommate, Frances. And then Frances McDormand went on to even marry Joel Cohen. So look at that. Friends helping friends in many ways. Um, But Holly Hunter is so, like, again, she's very uptight and, like, like reined in, but then just leaks emotion all over the place. I just love, love, love her in this role. And this movie came out when I was, like, nine or ten years old. So imagine seeing this movie at ten years old. Like, it changed my life. <laughs> it changed my fucking life. I never saw it as a kid. I mean, I remember when it came out. I remember, like, seeing the video at the video store. But um, I didn't see it until I was probably in college. Yeah. So. No, it, it... I mean, if you have a 10-year-old, maybe show them this movie. I don't know. I'm not great at parenting advice. But <laughs> I will just say it changed my view of the world in a very positive and fun way to see yeah. this movie as a kid. Um and then again, the cast is just like they the the Cohen brothers tend to use a stable of actors that they use time and time again. Um, you know, John Goodman, William Forsyth, Sam McMurray, Francis McDormand. Um, it's just like a nonstop hit. Yeah. It just hits all over the place in terms of the cast. Um 
And John Goodman, I really, what I really love about this this film and his role in this film is that he tends, like you can kind of see a trajectory with him as well. If you look at John Goodman in this, and then in Barton Fink, and then in like The Big Lebowski, you can kind of see where they're giving him space to be a little bit. Like he's just he's more amped up with every role and kind of more. Um, I don't know. He's just he's very pointedly and focused in terms of his his oddity. Like you never know what he's going to bring to the table in a Coen Brothers film, and I absolutely love that. But I know also- there was like that part um, where he's there in the uh, gas station bathroom or wherever it is after they just came out of jail and he puts that like crown royal stuff in his hair yeah. and he it, like you can just see him taking this huge <laughs> chunk of it and he just like slaps it you know into his like, little pompadour thing and i was like how and the only thing i could think about was like how long did it take for him to wash that shit out of his hair i know like weeks yeah <laughs> absolute weeks he must have really went for it like he just picked it was like half a can and he just like Slapped it in the hair, and I'm like, oh man, he was his pillowcases were disgusting. Disgusting. For like oh god, like <laughs> like soaked right through to the pillow, like down <laughs> to the bones. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> but it is like just an, again an incredible, incredible cast of actors, and so we're we're entering this. Oh, and then also we have. Randall Tex Cobb, who plays the bounty hunter, we will get into him. But what I love about this film, too, is that there are so many memorable scenes that continue to be funny or, and for me, even get funnier over time. And I just, again, I love that this is a film that is primarily a cult classic, but it's for things, it's, it's for specific reasons. Like it is a cult classic because it is so memorable and so great and funny. And it's such a weird slice of life to look into. So you've got, Again, H.I. McDonough, people call him high. Um, repeat offender, he's arrested as soon as you see him. Like, the first time you see him on screen, he's being arrested. And he kind of gives the, the he's the, the, the brain of the movie in that his thoughts are kind of what um, carries the film. Like, you hear from him in a voiceover and you really get into his interior life because you get to hear his thoughts all the time. Yeah. And Ed, again, very uptight police officer uh, who keeps taking his picture every time he's arrested. And so you're getting this, it's such a weird way to tell a story of how they've met, but they meet and he's like, she's really pretty. And then he gets arrested again. He released, gets arrested again, and she's crying because her fiance broke up with her, who she calls her fiance, which I fucking love. Um, (laughs) And then the next, the third time you see him getting arrested, he proposes. And again, the writing is so fucking great so he walks in and he like he walks in in a little suit jacket he says i'm walking in here on my knees ed like it's just little shit like that that just cracks me the fuck up um but he proposes and she's like okay and so they get a house and they get he gets a job um you'll notice if you look closely at his uniform that he works for hudsucker industries and oh, we know right. that um the coen brothers in 1994 released the film hudsucker proxy but they'd been thinking about it since around this time they kind of wanted it to be their second film but it was kind of too big for them to to go for at the time so but it's in there that little institutional memory. Uh, so he gets this job, and then, you know, next step, Ed's like, I want a baby. And then she finds out she can't conceive. And a hilarious scene, like a scene that is, should be so heartbreaking ends up being so fucking funny um, because she just pulls up with her siren going in her cop car and is like, I'm barren. And then they go to the doctor, and 
through the voiceover, you hear Hi say, um, the doctor told me that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. Like, it's just so <laughs> weirdly funny and, like, country. And, like, I just, I don't know. I love the way he talks and the things he says. And it's very, very funny setup. That's that's what I love about the script, too, is that it does... I mean, I, I just know this because I watch old movies all the time, but it feels like the all the... It feels like the characters are always talking in this kind of vernacular that's like kind of old country stuff, like the yeah. mind you don't cut yourself, Mordecai type of thing, like mind you this. And like, yeah, using all of the kind of, I mean, it sounds like they're in, you know, like a 1940s, you know, like John Steinbeck-ish type of yes. thing. You know what I mean? Where they're like, it's a lot of, like, that kind of thing, which I think is really charming and funny, and I think it obviously, like, contri- contributes to the kind of the slapstickness of the movie, in a way. Yes. Oh, yeah. I could not agree more. Could not, Especially the character of Nathan Arizona, who, again, we will get to. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, they can't have kids, and so Ed is really depressed, and she quits her job, and then they, they, you know, time's going on, and they're just kind of in this low spot in their relationship, and then all of a sudden they read in the paper that a local furniture salesman, Nathan Arizona, uh, and his wife have had quintuplets, the Arizona quints. And they decide to steal one of the babies. Ed's like, we're going to take one of those babies. And this is all before the credits. This is when the credits roll. <laughs> when they're like, let's take this baby. The re- so the re- one of the main reasons I picked this movie for this theme is that there's so many ways from the intro to the film that people would not get this relationship. So it's like, why would a cop marry a robber, essentially? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why would they uh, someone who usually steals from convenience stores with no ammunition, because then he knows his sentence won't, will be lighter, uh, why would he decide to then steal a human being? Like, there's just so many ways in where you're like, people don't get it or might not get it. But the way it's presented, it makes total sense on the screen that this is a log- this is weirdly a logical step for them to take. Yeah. Yeah, I love Nathan Arizona, like oh my God. senior like Troy Wilson who plays him. Like it's so funny that he, he his character is like to me seems like kind of a common character in that Cohen brother universe which is like the the country business guy or whatever. Yes. And like it always cracks me up when he talks about owning an unfinished furniture business. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure if this is a Southern thing or not. I mean, but I knew a lot of people who who bought unfinished furniture. Like, and it was, there was so many of those things, like, in my hometown, like, warehouses f- filled with unfinished furniture. And I'm like, why that, do people buy it just because they want to design it and like paint it themselves or like I, or it's cheaper? I don't understand what what the appeal is of unfinished furniture. That is very much a southern thing, I think, because I've <laughs> I've never seen that in my life growing up in the East Coast, like north northeast. <laughs> never saw that. I, yeah, I I I just assumed it was like a country thing, like people's parents wanted to, like, you know, I don't know, put stencils on their own fucking <laughs> chest of drawers or something. I'm like, I don't know. They, they wanted the exact right stain for their cabinets. They're like, we need it to be this exact shade of kind of orangey red. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so puzzling. I don't know. Maybe it is even more of a country look to have unfinished 
furniture in your house. I don't know. But anyway, it just cracks me up because it's like his entire bread and butter is this fucking unfinished furniture business. And he's so successful. And you're right. Like, he's he's part of this, again, the Coen brothers love to present this kind of character, this country businessman who's also kind of a bombastic shithead. Yes. Um, but also ends up bringing, like, most of the comedy in every scene that they're in. Yeah. Like, he is just so fucking funny. There's that scene where after the kid is stolen and he's talking to the cops and the cops are like, um, can you, <laughs> was he wearing anything when he went to bed? And he's like, nobody sleeps naked in this house. <laughs> and then the, the cop persists and he's like, well, what was he wearing? And he's like, he was wearing a dinner jacket. What do you think he was wearing? He was wearing his jammy. <laughs> he's like... Yeah. That that whole like Yoda thing too always cracks me up. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. So fucking funny to me. Oh, oh my god. god. It's so, and it's great too because again, in the spirit of the film, it's like his child has just been kidnapped. And he has no time for these fucking cops. He's like going around picking up after them, like, get your feet off my fucking furniture, my unfinished furniture, <laughs> and go find my child. I don't have time for your shitty questions. But he's such a, he brings such a, a balance of energy to this, you know, this H.I. McDonough character who's kind of like floating through life in a way. Whereas Nathan Arizona is like, this is what I do. This is who I am. I am this guy all the time when I'm talking yeah. to my wife, when I'm talking to my kids, when I'm making a commercial, does not matter. This is who I am. Yeah. Um, so his confidence is so off-putting compared to to HI. But yeah, so they 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 he <laughs> Ed makes him steal this baby, which again, a scene that is so incredible. It's just absolute mayhem. It is it, there is nothing that showcases Nicolas Cage as a comic actor more than this scene, in my opinion. Like yeah. he's literally doing like the little ding 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 kind of cartoon walk to chase after the baby sometimes. Um, but he gets a baby and he grabs the Spock book on the way out. Uh, this book, the fact the fact that this book is a through line in this film also cracks me up. Yeah. That's and they have they hang this little welcome home son banner and play their record and bring this baby home. Um, meanwhile, on the same night, Gail and Evel Snotes, his former prison inmates uh, friends, are breaking out of the same jail where High was an inmate. This is one of those scenes. Again, saw this when I was ten years old. This is one of those scenes that is so fucking memorable. And when I first saw this movie, I had no idea what was happening. So. You have John Goodman busting out through the mud on a thunderstorm-filled rainy night, just screaming. The only dialogue <laughs> in this scene is screaming. <laughs> and he's screaming his head off. And then he reaches down into the mud and pulls his brother out by the leg. And then he's screaming. And it is just such a... It's so funny, but it's so freeing. Like, it's just like they've broken out of jail and they are just fucking thrilled. And because of the thunderstorm, they're able to just scream their way through all the mud and shit they just tunneled through. They're able to just scream at their own release. It just, oh, it's such a great scene. I mean, I mean, not, I know that this movie is about babies, but it's like they're being birthed in that yes. moment. You know, it's like they're both yes. like coming out of this like, whole this like and they were just like ah! and it's like so so insane because i kept thinking like okay i was trying to think about like 
the jailbreak plans. I'm like, how do they get, okay, so they must have come out through like a pipe or something, or but then right. how are they able to pull themselves up out of whatever it is? Like, I, I was, Why you know, was the brother tra- upside down? Yes, <laughs> why was, the, the brother was breech, apparently, I don't know, but it was like that <laughs> thing where I was like, how the fuck did they get out of jail through like a muddy hole? Like, it's, <laughs> So there's, crazy. there's even a point where he says, like, yeah, we hit a sewer line, unfortunately, on the way out. Like, it wasn't that deeply planned. They were just like, we're going to tunnel out, and that's how we're going to do it. Wow. Yeah. It's fucking incredible. But I love that correlation. You're absolutely right. It's like they're being birthed into this world <laughs> of absolute mayhem. And then, of course, the first thing they do is go to H.I.'s house. And Ed is not having it. Ed's like, who the fuck are these friends? Why do they smell so bad? We ju- And this is all in the same night. They just stole this baby. And she's like, we need to protect our kid. Get them the fuck out of here. And they're kind of like, they're, they're a weird fly in the ointment because you think, well, H.I. is also a convicted felon. <laughs> and his friends are all obviously going to be convicted felons in a lot of ways. So the fact that Ed is kind of surprised about it is an interesting story point. Um, but as part of that, they don't get it and they don't have to because, you know, Gail and Avell are like, why are you with why are you with this woman? Like she's cute, but she's a real ball breaker. And she doesn't quite kind of get that this is what you do when you get out of prison as you go and stay with your friends. They're yeah. just it's kind of emphasizes the discord. Um, in the relationship a little bit. Um, I mean, it's basically like a keyed up version of like, you know, that kind of classic narrative of like the wife has to like tell the husband to grow up or mm -hmm. whatever. And she's like, you can't bring your rough friends around here and you got to be responsible. We got a baby now, like can't be fucking around. You know, it's just basically like, you know, that sort of classic narrative of like men are terrified of fatherhood and, the, exactly. the wife has to coax them into being a, a responsible person. It's just kind of like a keyed-up slapstick version of that, right? Completely right. And we see it play out even further when when they do have company come over. Because she's like, you got to get these guys out of here because we're having, like, real people come over. And H.I.'s foreman, Glenn, who's played by Sam McMurray, and his wife, <laughs> Dot, played by Frances McDormand. Frances McDormand is... I mean, they're both incredible in this film, yeah. but she is so over-the-top hilarious in her role as Dot that I cannot stop laughing every time she's on screen. And they do. They come over with their five kids, and these kids are feral. It is the funniest fucking scene I have ever <laughs> saw as a child where I'm like, what is happening here? One kid has an eye patch and a head bandage, and it's just <laughs> chucking jello. And then you got Buford, who's just like a mouth-breathing little miscreant who's writing fart on the wall in crayon. <laughs> so awesome. Like, I want that tattoo. That's my next tattoo is Buford writing fart on the wall. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that shit, believe me. Oh, my like. God. It is the, just the image of it. I can conjure it up so quickly and it makes me laugh so hard. But again, it's this other layer of... We don't get it. Maybe we don't have to. Like, why do they keep having all these kids? These kids are, like, not normal. <laughs> these children are feral. And they just keep having and wa- and wanting kids. And that's a relationship that I just don't understand. Of, like, you have all these kids that you can't control. And you seem to still, like, love each other and want more. I don't get it. 
Well, it's funny because, oh my God, I was just having this conversation with my mom and dad the other night uh, because I have I have this like sneaking suspicion and they might have actually said, they may have actually alluded to it in the film, but like they were talking about how like, they want a, a baby because the, the when the kids grow up, they're not as cuddly as yes. they used to be. You know? that, yes, that's what Glenn says. Yeah. Yes, and I was talking to my mom and dad about this because, you know, my nephews are getting older, you know? And we were kind of like, you know, we were kind of talking about how when they were babies, they were so cute and they were all this, this and that. Not that they're not cute anymore, but you know what I'm saying. There's a yeah. difference between like a three-year-old and like a seven-year-old. Exactly. And, the seven-year-old is, like, just playing video games all day and doesn't want to hug. Like, you know, like, it's like a different a different age of kid. And so I kept thinking about that, too, where I was like, well, they just probably keep having kids it's because they're just getting, the kids get older, and then they're like, well, they're not cute anymore. We got to have another baby. And then it just keeps happening over and over. They're like, what we love is the baby part of babies, yes. not the child kid part of babies. <laughs> Which I was like, and then I just kept thinking, is that why people have like 12 kids? Yeah, unless they're part of that quiverful nation. (laughs) It's usually because they're like, well, we have forgotten that they get older and become more of a pain in the ass. Yeah. We like the cute, cuddly part. It's so wild. It's absolutely wild. And they are also, I mean, like, look, Glenn and Dot, again, wild. They're also swingers. So... Glenn is saying these horrible jokes and, like, just being a, again, bombastic piece of shit. He also kind of, you know, H.I. is, like, he's having this, like, panic attack because he's just had this conversation with Dot and Ed where they're like, you got to get him his dip-tet shots, you got to get a doctor, you got to start saving for college and orthodontia. And so H.I. is having, like, a panic attack and... Glenn's solution is, well, we're swingers, so we should wife swap, and that takes the edge off. So, of course, (laughs) H.I. just punches him right in the fucking face, which does some damage, but he does even more damage to himself when he runs away and runs right into a cactus. Um, (laughs) But that whole scene is so fucking great and funny, and it's like, you can see H.I. kind of processing, like, I don't know what I've gotten myself into, I just love my wife and want to make her happy. And he's, it's very prophetic. Like, he's having these prophetic dreams throughout the movie, and he's also, like, living a prophecy in that moment. It's so fucking funny. I gotta say, too, Sam McMurray, I feel like, is such an underrated comedic actor. Like, every time I would see him, even now, like, when I saw, when I, in his later years, it always reminded me of seeing him on the Tracy Ullman show, which I was obsessed with when it was on TV. And I, I just, every time I see him, he he just makes me happy. His characters are always like so funny and You're weird. And absolutely right. Like him. he's he definitely is underrated and brings an energy and a flavor to comedy and and to his roles that is really unparalleled. Like I can't think of another person that I'm as soon as I see them I'm just like viscerally happy. Yeah. Oh, he's so great. So, and again, this movie is made up of these like kind of great scenes. So the next great scene that we see is when they're they're kind of you know, Hi and Ed are, are driving home and they have to stop for diapers. And H.I. kind of can't, you know, get rid of his thieving ways. And so he picks out a pair of pantyhose and a package of diapers and just, like, robs the store. And it is the fucking greatest scene because this scene is, it's a car chase, yeah. it's a foot chase, and it's a shootout all around one neighborhood. And it's, it 
feels like a sing. It's not, but it feels like a single sh- shot scene. Like the way that yeah. they're kind of going through the motions of how he's escaping once he's tried to rob this store and isn't getting away with it. And Ed just drives away. She's like, you're a son of a bitch. I can't believe you're doing this. We have a baby now. And she just leaves him. So you see him running through this neighborhood, trying to get away from the cops. The cops have been called. The clerk is shooting at him. Like, it is just, again, in that Looney Tunes way, when you really look at the film from that perspective, you're like, yeah, this feels very cartoonish, but also simultaneously so wonderfully funny and so fresh. And the way that it's shot and the way that they kind of... You get close-ups of of weird people who seem inconsequential. So, like, women running. I mean, there's a dog chase. Like, Dogs. you see, <laughs> you see like, from the perspective of the woman being chased by a dog. You see from the perspective of the guy driving the truck that, that H.I. tries to, you know, kind, kind of hijack. Like, you're just seeing these perspectives that meld so perfectly. But the, the energy and the franticness and the hilarity just comes through in the way that they're shot. And those kind of close-ups that, as people are running. Um, yeah. Is is wonderful. Yeah, it it almost seems like, and I mean, I don't, I didn't read too too much about the way that the film was shot, but it feel it feels very like Evil Dead, like the camera mounted on a board and people running with it because it's like traveling yes. with people like through the house and through the neighborhood, and um, that to me is so fun. Like this is my favorite sequence of the film is this yes. entire sequence with the with the huggies and it just feels very activated it's you know yeah there's a lot of stuff going on moving through different you know frames with with the people running like kind of following them and i just it's so exciting and funny and you're seeing all this like crap just flying by and you're like what the fuck and so i don't know i love it so much yeah, it's really frenetic. Like, it's a frenetic energy yeah. that I just appreciate. And it is one of the the quintessential scenes in this film that is referenced when people talk about this film. Because it is, yeah. again, it was so fresh, so funny, so wild. Um, while also keeping the narrative going in an interesting way. Like, that's skill. Um, and yeah. they, use, they use the same energy when they are introducing and following the bounty hunter. So you kind of meet him first in one of H.I.'s dreams, and he's kind of prophecy the, this person is coming to town to kind of chase him. And Randall Tex Cobb is like this huge man, just covered in dirt and soil. He's got a tattoo that says, Mama didn't love me, and he's got his baby boots like dangling from his his waist. Um, but he's just like dirty and like Hasley's like... He's like a real weird gunslinger, um, but he's for hire. And so he goes, he, there's a great scene where he goes to see Nathan Arizona and he's basically like, um, yeah, I can find your baby, but you're going to have to pay me double what you're what you're offering for the reward. And if you don't pay me, somebody will. Like he basically is threatening him. Like I will sell your fucking baby on the black market because yeah. I was sold on the black market and I got more money than you're offering when I was a baby. And that was in 1954. Like, it is just such a wild scene. He's so threatening, mostly quiet. That's the only scene where you really hear him. Um, Mm -hmm. But he is a really threatening, menacing presence. And he comes into town on, like, a fucking wave of fire and dust and dirt. And he's just really, he's kind of, he's really scary. Again, like, when I saw this movie as a kid, I was frightened of this character. (laughs) I'm like, I don't understand, like, how how he's fitting into this really funny narrative. He does later on. Yeah, he's very, like, road warrior. Like, what you know, like, it's it's terrifying. Like, just the, just, like, I don't know, his whole look. And, like, yeah, the he's, like, kind of, I mean, honestly, kind of reminds me of, like, Twin Peaks, 
the return meets like the road warrior, just kind of this like weird like creature or yeah. something. You know, like he's kind of mute and kind of he's not he he feels like he's not of the world that we're yes, in. Yes, exactly. And so, but he's again fascinating to watch and lends a real grittiness and strangeness to this movie, especially because again, like Hi keeps kind of dreaming about being chased and this guy is chasing him. So all like I said, all hell does break loose. Uh Glenn finally puts two and two together and realizes cuz he's been asking like how'd you get a baby so fast? realizes that that Junior is one of the Arizona Quints that's been stolen and he comes over and he's like so Dot wants a baby. Um I can't give her another baby, so we're just going to give you a day to come to peace with this decision and you're going to give us this baby. Like, we're not going to turn you in. Um, nothing's going to happen, but we want this baby. And Gail and Avell overhear the conversation, and then they steal the baby because they're like, we want the ransom. Like, we're going to rob this bank, but we also want the ransom, and then we'll be on easy street. We'll get, like, two payments for one job, essentially. Um, but that leads to, again, another hilarious scene of them leaving the baby on the top of the car after they rob a convenience store. And they just communicate so much through screaming in this film <laughs> and it is like they are they fall in love with this kid like everyone who comes around this kid just falls in love with this kid and they're just like heartbroken that they could have killed this baby but they go back and he's just laying in the road just sitting in his car seat just kind of having a good old time it's definitely a fucking hilarious scene and then again i'm not gonna ruin the end of the movie but the bounty hunter does catch up with everyone we have another incredibly thoughtful and prophetic dream from H.I. Uh, there's a point where you think that maybe he and Ed are not going to make it because uh, this is just not turned out the way they expected. Um, but I just, I love this movie. I think this is one of those relationships that you don't get it. You don't have to. They've got something that works for them. And the lengths that they will go to to get a baby is something that I also don't get. Um, but... <laughs> But it works for them. Uh, so, yeah, just, again, classic film, kind of a cult classic film, and just so worth the watch. It is truly hilarious. Yeah, I I love it so much. It's, like, such a fun world to be in. And also, like, it's always interesting when, like, male filmmakers make movies about fatherhood. Yeah. You know? Like, because that kind of feels like, you know, it, it kind of feels like that's, they they might have been working through some ideas there when they made exactly. this movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> kind of in that, like, David Lynch eraserhead kind of way. You're like, oh, I think they're trying to process some information as men. <laughs> they're right. like, let's put it in a movie. And let's make it like a Preston Sturgis-esque romp or whatever. Um, and it kind of extends itself to that I don't get it and I don't have to way of, like, how most men are portrayed as approaching fatherhood. Like, I don't know what this is going to mean for me. I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. I don't get it, but yeah. I should do it. Yeah, and it goes back to, like, what we were saying earlier about, like, the two people that fell in love by, like, getting attacked by bison. Like, it's just sort of, like, two people who you would never expect to, like, kind of fall for each other. They're both kind of outlaws in their own way. I mean, they actually become outlaws because they steal a child. But, you know, it's like one is a cop and the other is a criminal, uh, which is always a fascinating narrative anytime that happens, right? Yep. But, um. But then just, like, this idea that they're, like, in their own insular world where they have rationalized stealing a child because she can't have a child. And exactly. they've kind of made this decision, you know, 
uh, amongst themselves and where everybody is like, who would steal a baby? That is so, you know. But as it turns out, a lot of people actually want to steal babies. I know, back when this came out, I wasn't aware of the of the amount of babies that were being stolen. Like, I, I think kidnapping was definitely on the radar because the milk carton kids started coming out. Yes. And I know my first name is Steven was on NBC. And yes. like, I knew kids were getting taken. Yes. But the... the seeing it from the flip side of like why somebody would take a child and having it be for kind of an altruistic reason was never explored at that yeah. point. Yeah. Um, and, to, and to steal it from like this like, you know, hokey businessman who had five babies. Like that's the thing yeah. that they keep rationalizing to themselves. Well, he's got enough, he's got enough babies. He can't possibly like love all of them. You know, and they even, so. he even says it. They reference this article in the newspaper where he's like, "It's more than we can handle," and it's kind of thing that somebody <laughs> yes. says and like, just like a throwaway comment. And they're like, they lock onto it as like, "Well, look, this is our reasoning: is that yeah. he's saying they can't handle, so we'll just take one off their hands." Exactly. It's given us this permission to do the thing. You know, also to steal a baby and then just stay in the same town <laughs> is a wild thought. <laughs> yeah, it really it really is. But honestly, like a perfect movie for the theme. I mean, it really is like a fun just like to just get into the zone of who they are as characters and in their relationship, you're just like, wow. Yeah. I don't get it and I guess I don't have to, but it's fun to it's watch. It's still fun. Exactly. Still fun to watch. And then there's your movie. Oh, we're taking a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> What's the opposite of slapstick? Um, <laughs> my movie for the theme, they don't get it and they don't have to, is a movie from 1981. It was written by Frederick Tutin and Andre Zhuowski, directed by Andre Zhuowski, and it's called Possession. You have someone. Yes. Do you sleep with him? Yes. Okay, I... I really have to be careful because we could go like four and a half hours on this movie. Easily. Easily. (laughs) There is a lot to talk about and process in this film. But I'll just say for me, like how I felt, how I came to this movie. Uh, Not sure if you guys are interested, but I'll tell you anyway. (laughs) So. I am. um, I am. (laughs) Thank you. Is this self-care or serial killer? So just tell me right now. Um, Depends on your answer. Depends on your answer. (laughs) So, you know, I heard about this movie in college, right? And it it, it was really because I was obsessed with video nasties. I don't know. if, if, Mm -hmm. If you're unaware of the term video nasties, okay? It's a reference to an assortment of home video titles that were regulated by the UK government in the 80s. I mean, even though I think a version of it still exists, but it was kind of like an 80s thing, at least from my very basic understanding of it, right? So it was just this list of movies, and there were different tiers to the list, right? But basically, the gist was... These are movies that were incredibly violent and had a lot of content. And for example, in this day, if you owned a video store and you were caught renting one of these video nasties, then you could be prosecuted by, you know, the the cops or whatever. Um, And it was really just like an effort to get 
I, I think everybody was really freaked out in the 80s about kids watching weird VHS tapes. Oh, satanic panic was in full swing. Absolutely. And again, this had a lot to do more with home video and not theatrical, because theatrical has its own censorship. You know, they have the M- in America, it's the MPAA. You know, Britain, all countries have their own system of rating films when they're right. released in movie theaters. But I think the, the key was people were going to, have home video equipment. They were going to watch, like, fucked-up Italian cannibal movies, and we can't have that. Let's create this video nasties list, right? Mm-hmm. And because of this restriction, right, a lot of these movies ended up getting, like, recut, and there was, like, many iterations of these films in distribution. So, like, and, and I got to admit, a lot of them were Italian. <laughs> a lot of Italians making some fucked up movies. Your cannibal, um, <laughs> your cannibal movie. <laughs> your cannibal movies. Your, you know, it was a lot of like, fa- you know, the usual suspects, cannibal films, faces of death, really gory, violent slashers, some animal cruelty, which we know is not good, but it, you know, whatever. It's that thing of like, they were like, oh, these are terrible, violent films. We can't have the kids watching them. And like, you know, I have to say as a budding movie maniac, I was like, I mean, I was just wanting to see any kind of transgressive film. So I told myself, well, shit, if they're being banned, these must be, like, really crazy. So I just was obsessed with trying to watch as many as I could, right? And when I went to college, I went down to the, you know, the video store that I used to go to in the city called Blast Off, and they they would have, like, all the, you know, uncut, you know, uh, you know, unrated versions of, you know, fucking... Cannibal apocalypse. And so I just was like a maniac looking for weird stuff to watch, right? right? So this was like possession was on the video nasties list. And I never I never saw it back then, but then about 12, 15 years ago, I somehow found a copy. I finally saw it. And I just was like, I was fascinated ever since because I, I this movie is sort of indescribable in a lot of ways. I mean, I programmed it many years ago on TCM for TCM Underground, it might have actually been the first time that it played on American TV in, like, a really long time. I mean, I wrote about it for our book. So it was like, this just has this, like, maybe I'm possessed with possession in a lot of ways. But I, so for for when I watched it for this episode, I actually watched the director's cut of it, which is, nice. like, over two hours long. I'm not sure what version is out there right now, like, because I know it's on Shutter. Um, and I know that there are like Blu-rays of it. Like I think Mondo Digital has a has the like the two-hour version of it. But like I said, because it was cut so many times, it's hard to know which version you're actually watching sometimes. Like if you just right. see it on a streaming site, you're like, oh, I don't know if it's 97 minutes versus like 125 minutes or whatever. The director's cut is is very hardcore. <laughs> if you have never seen it and you've only seen a cut version, uh, just adds a lot more to it. So, like I said, <laughs> don't know what I've version. Only, I've only ever seen the director's cut because I've only seen yeah. it this couple of times. And so I don't know if you know what they would cut to make it, like, try to make it more palatable. It's hard to say. Like, I know that there's a couple of, like, you know, like, fight sequences and maybe... I don't know. Like I, I don't know exactly what was cut because I think it's been a long time since I've I've seen a cut version. But like, yeah, the director's cut is like it's just there's just a lot extra 
extra long scenes and just stuff that you're like, oh shit, like I, that is that's pretty hardcore. Um, I I also cannot believe this movie wasn't called What About Bob. <laughs> Truly missed opportunity. I mean, and we eventually got a What About Bob movie, but this should have been called What About Bob. <laughs> Yeah, oh, 100%. We will definitely talk about, like, maybe there's another, like, theme that unites these two movies, and it's, like, blonde boys in peril. (laughs) 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 Little blonde boys in peril. Won't somebody think of the children? Is that a theme? (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, like I said, I could talk about this movie forever. I mean, I think the important thing to know, though, if you've never seen Possession or if you're kind of like new to to this f- film, it was a really personal project for the director, right? Because Zawalski grew up in Poland, you know, back when Poland was a communist country. And right before he made this movie, two things happened to him that I feel like heavily influenced the film. Number one, he was going through a really bad divorce where he also had a child. So I I would say, like, a movie about divorce is probably directly related to his personal life at the time. And the second thing is that his prior film, uh, which was this, like, huge kind of epic science fiction film, was actually shut down by the government. Um, So he had that kind of professional failure. He was obviously kind of processing the failure of his own marriage. And this is why we have possession, right? And I'll say this too. I mean, I feel like if if you're a fan of his films, I think they generally have kind of a keyed up theatrical kind of style. Yeah. But I have to say, I think possession, knowing what we know about him and what he was going through at the time, I feel like there is extra, like there's some extra drama going on in possession. I feel like possibly some of the fights he really had with his ex like were just directly translated into dialogue for this film. A hundred percent. And I mean, just like, I mean, dare I say this might be the most all the way up film that we've ever <laughs> talked about? Yes. Cause agree, it's, agree. I think once you press play and you see kind of the style of the acting, you you kind of understand what we're talking about. It's just, it's very hyper keyed up and emotional. And, you know, and I also think what's really interesting too is that they filmed the movie in West Berlin, right? At the time, it was still divided. And I think that has everything that is part of the messaging of this film because this film is essentially about division, right? Division in marriage, political division. And, you know, there's lots of shots of the Berlin Wall and a lot of shots of, like, the barbed wire and the guards and stuff. And that just, I think, adds to the theme of the film, which Mm -hmm. is that this is a film about a couple who are going through a divorce or going through a separation. And the emotional component to that, right? It's like watching two people break up in the most intense way possible. Holy hell. You know, um, so just to give you kind of a rundown of who's in the movie, okay, you've got as the couple, you've got Isabelle Aljani, classic French actress. Everybody go see Peter von Kant. Did everybody see that movie when it came out last year? 
It's, it no. was like my favorite movie. Um, but she's in that movie. But she's she's obviously been in so many things. And this might be... Her, I mean, she in this movie is going for broke. Like... Both of the both of them, like both Isabel Aljani and Sam Neill, who plays her husband in the film. I mean, I've read accounts where they were both like completely spent after yeah. making this movie. I mean, oh, I I would need like a five month recuperation period after making something yeah. like this, and you can tell in every scene, especially Isabel Aljani, yeah. just goes so hard. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we're going to talk about the infamous scene in the subway because it's become sort of a classic scene in like a, you know, it gets referenced a lot and vi- and, mm-hmm. and um, there's been a lot of like homages to it. But right. she in this film, the both of them are just, compl- they're just acting their asses off. And it's just, I mean, it's just such a spectacle to watch, honestly. But, you know, Sam Neill plays Mark. Isabel Aljani plays Anna. They are living in West Berlin, right? And they're they're going through problems. And at the beginning of the movie, like, Mark comes home from a job. He's some kind of spy or investigator. He comes home at the beginning of the movie, and, and you quickly understand that things are really tense between the two of them. Like, she's just, like, over it, and he kind of don't know why. She's kind of, like weirdly like repulsed by the sight of him yeah which is very interesting and you just kind of are in the the relationship problems immediately you're like i don't know what happened but these two fucking people hate each other and she really wants out of it he is distraught so essentially you know he keeps saying to her at the beginning of the film is there somebody else are you seeing another person have you been cheating on me she says no you know, at first, they have a son named Bob who, like like we talked about, maybe seven or eight years old, bl- uh, blonde, Poor Bob. little, you know, village of the damned looking child. And this kid is truly in the middle of this, of this craziness. Like, yeah. <laughs> It, it it it's like if you think about it too long, you're like, they are definitely not allowed to have this kid around. Like they they oh gotta that that kid needs to go to grandma's house and live there. It's there is a good. scene where Mark comes home after like being in a hotel for three weeks, and comes home and Bob is just sitting down in a corner like covered in jam. Yeah, and you're like, who has been taking care of this kid? And then you realize no one has been taking care of. And you're like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that episode of Mr. Show, the Bob LaMonta story, where the kid's like got the the pot over his head and he's like, I've just been eating frozen peas or whatever. Like, that's like what this kid is doing is like, he's been on his own for some questionable amount of time. He's like gone feral. He's just smearing food on his face because he's like, doesn't know how to be alone, obviously. And like that's the thing. So here, so here's the situation. You know, Mark has gone into a hotel to devolve. Like he has flipped the fuck out. He's like, can't understand why she wants to leave them. He wants his family together. He can't accept it, and he just like goes into this like 
altered state for a couple weeks. Then he comes back home, discovers that his son has been left alone for God knows how long, and he's just, like, lost his shit. And he eventually, they eventually get, you know, have a conversation, and he, I mean, the whole time, you're like, I mean, these are very keyed up people. They're, like, emotional, like, the way that it's shot. It almost feels like, oh, I know they shot it with a wide-angle lens, but it's like, that just really creates more drama for these people is that you're seeing these people in these like wide angled perspectives their their eyes are popping out of their heads they're screaming they're emphatic about everything like every conversation is tense and emotional and you're just like wow this is very 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 high key emotions right now right yeah the what that wide angle the way that it's shot in that wide angle way for so many of the scenes like it really compounds the isolation uh yeah. that each character seems to be feeling as well which is it's like it's very sparse it's, it's, the, the world just kind of floats between this really sparse and like overly saturated kind of way yeah. Oh, 100%. So what ends up happening is, you know, they're they're kind of just going back and forth about this, this scenario. And then, as it turns out, Mark finds out that she actually has been seeing somebody. And it's this man named Heinrich, who is played by a German actor named Heinz Bennett. And Mark goes to Heinrich's house to pay him a visit because he's got to go meet the guy that has been cheating on with his wife. And this entire sequence is unbelievable to me. Oh my gosh. Look, Heiner <laughs> tries to warn him. He's like, we don't have to fight. We don't have to be like adversaries. Like I'm fucking your wife, but it doesn't have to be like that. Right. He comes in, Mark comes into this guy's apartment, flat, whatever. This guy's got four buttons on his shirt unbuttoned from junk. Like, he's like, my shirt's open. You're seeing my bare chest. <laughs> and I live with my mom, and you're and always going to have to deal mom. with it. And he basically says, I fuck your wife in front of my mom, like when my mom is here. He's like, we've been seeing each other for a year. Yes, we fuck in this apartment, and my mom is here, and she knows it's happening. By the way... You can see my bare, tanned chest. And when you walk through the door, I'm going to just start caressing you. I'm going to caress <laughs> you the minute you walk in the door. Can you imagine this shit, dude? If you went to, like, go confront, you know, somebody that's been cheating on with your partner, and this is the fu- this is the vibe. It is a fucking genius move. The next time I have any conflict with anybody in person, I'm just going to start caressing them. It is so <laughs> off-putting. <laughs> and it's like Sam Neill is so fucking funny because you talk about Looney Tunes. His eyeballs are like popping out of his skull in this moment. He's like, who the fuck does this guy think he is right now? And like they're moving through the apartment and it's like, you know, it's just like this insane scene where like Heinrich is like basically like, but she's my woman and like, uh, but I haven't seen her lately. But guess what? You know, this is just how it is. Like, it's very very crazy. <laughs> well, it's also a sh- very strange way of Heinrich kind of it's maybe this is a little bit too esoteric, but it's it's it seems to me a way of Heinrich kind of saying um like with the touching and the way that they're moving and choreographing themselves around this apartment like he's they're doing this dance and he's kind of kind of 
he seems to be saying like I I can own you too. Like you're yes. You're not you don't have any ownership here. Um like I can touch you. I can do whatever I want because yeah. of my relationship with Anna. Um I kind of I kind of possess you. Oh, she went there. She went there. Listen, you I love it. I need I I love this kind of High-level discourse. Come on. Well, and he kind of does because he's like, look, you've been in a hotel room for three weeks going mad because right. of me. Like, yeah. I, y- you've given me that power. Like, I own yeah. your thoughts. Yeah. And basically, like, I saw an interview with Jowalski who was basically like, yeah, you know, in my actual life, my wife was seeing a, a, a man who was very similar to this character, right? So... Think about him, his character being like the manifestation of like his ultimate nightmare, which is this like smooth, fucking well read, you know, European hunk. And he just like gets in your face. Like he's like, I'm cucking you like you wouldn't fucking believe. Like he's got no problem. He's got no, he's not sorry. He's just like, yes. And there's nothing more. Like, this cracks me the fuck up when this happens, but basically, he kicks his ass. Heinrich oh. kicks his ass in his apartment, and then he does this, like, little back kick. <laughs> He's like, yeah! Like, in your fucking face, bitch! And you're like, wow. He's wow. like, I'm gonna kick your ass so quickly you don't even know what's happening. And then I'm gonna, <laughs> like, do a ballet pose because that's how limber and cool I am. <laughs> I mean, I just is like, I, oh my God, it's unbelievable. The, I mean, it's just that the whole sequence is just so un, unreal. But like, so here's what happens, okay? Because I'm I'm gonna try to not spoil this movie, but it feels like I, I kind of feel like you have to say something. <laughs> yeah, I have to reveal a little bit of information. I won't give you like the full Monty, but I'll just tell you I'm going to spoil like some key component of the film. Sorry, if you don't want, if you won't want it, fast forward until <laughs> the end. But um, so here's the deal: Mark is now like, okay, well, she's been missing. She's left our son alone for a really long time, and if she hasn't been with Heinrich, then she's seeing maybe somebody else on top of this guy. Okay, so what he ends up doing is hiring a private investigator. The least private private investigator of all time. Yes. (laughs) And this investigator finds out that she has an apartment in a really sketchy part of town. And she's been hanging out there. And so he goes to the apartment. And this place is scary as shit. Like, it's like the paint's peeling off the walls. There's no fucking furniture. It's a mattress on the floor. Like, it ain't... Like, all the all the windows are drawn. I mean, it's scary. But in the same vein of someone who has been, like, traumatized by real estate in America, I'm like, those doors... Those ceilings are <laughs> tall. That front door is immense. That shit looks cool as hell. It could be so great. <laughs> what a fixer-upper. <laughs> yes. The caveat being... This is in beautiful West Berlin, right? Like, the the architecture is classic, you know? So imagine a shithole in a really nice building, normally, uh, by American standards, okay? So um, here's what happens. The private investigator shows up, and he goes to this apartment, and then he 
see, he's basically pretending to be some like building inspector. He's like, oh, let me check your windows or whatever. And he's like, I got to go to your bathroom. And she's like, there's no windows in there. You know, she's acting real sketchy. And uh, he's like, but I got to go to that bathroom because I got to inspect the building. And then he goes in the bathroom and guess what? He sees a creature. Just a, a pulsating clot on the wall. And it is like black and gooey. <laughs> and it's like, it looks like an alien being. And it's just sitting there. Now, okay? for me, at that point, I dropped the charade. I'm like, look, I'm actually a private investigator. And I'm just going to get the fuck out of here. Yes, yes. I have seen enough. but here's what happens she's like well you saw the creature now I gotta kill your ass so she kills the fucking private investigator because she's like he's seen too much I told him not to go into the bathroom Um, so now there's this missing private investigator okay at the same time Mark you know is still on one trying to figure out, like, what's going on with Anna? What, who is she seeing? And he goes to his son's school, and he meets his son's teacher. The teacher looks exactly like Anna. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, that is part of, like... This is where the movie kind of moves into this, like, kind of supernatural realm, if you will, because basically, you know, this teacher is the doppelganger of Anna. And the teacher is everything Anna's not. She's pretty and demure and helpful and, you know, very even keels, I guess. And so... She likes Bob. (laughs) Yeah, she likes Bob. She takes care of Bob. And, you know, Mark is, like, fascinated by her because he's like, I mean, imagine, like, a a more perfect version of my wife standing here. And so they develop kind of a little bit of a relationship. So, So meanwhile, so that's happening. Then you've got another private investigator that comes through to find the first one. As it turns out, it's his boyfriend. So, ostensibly, you have a gay private investigator couple, one of whom is now dead in this disgusting apartment, and so his boyfriend comes looking for him, right? Then we get the second time we go into this apartment, and then you get the much better view of this creature. It's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. It's growing. And it's like kind of got a face. And then he discovers that his boyfriend is chopped up in the refrigerator. Like, talk about serial killer. And so you're going, okay, so Anna is basically protecting this thing. And she's, I don't know, like, I don't know what the what the creature does. I don't know if he feeds off of human flesh. I don't know what the hell's going on, but she is in another world right now. Like, she's... I mean, we just thought she was cheating on Mark with the fucking ballet guy. It's like this whole other thing. And so that that's kind of about, about as much as I can reveal without telling you exactly what's going on at the end, right? Because the bottom line is that, you know, as much as it this movie, you know, is called possession. I mean, she is being possessed, at least sexually, by this creature. And we don't really know why or how and what this thing ends up being. I know that, like, Carlo Rimbaldi, who, you know, is a very famous visual effects artist, he did the Alien movies. He actually worked on the monster. And so, I mean, it was like a lot went into this creature. And I think... Yeah. Jawowski had a really 
specific vision for what this thing was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's very interesting because, you know, again, knowing what you know about him and his personal life at the time, you're like, okay, like this is like him sort of like working through all this stuff. And he's like, my wife is actually sleeping with a creature. <laughs> and like, you know, that's, that's and what she the, must be yeah. possessed in order to be ripping our family apart and ripping our lives apart. Right. And so, and that's the thing is that like, you know, part of why I picked this movie for the theme is because A, something is wrong with me, obviously. But B, like, this is a relationship again. It's like, you know, it's the theme being, you know, they don't get it and they don't have to. You know, they're... There are people who are, like, really struggling to understand why this relationship's not working, mm-hmm. right? And at a certain point, you don't understand whether th- these are legit things happening or if these are just, like, fears within the other person. And like I said, I don't want to give away the ending, but it becomes, like, yeah, sort of a... a, a it becomes sort of a film more about, like, who are better people are in the relationship and whether right. or not, you know we could be better for other people. Yeah, like, what's the ideal? Exactly, exactly. And it's also, it's kind of interesting, too, to, to think of it as, like, like, I don't get why Anna and Mark are together, yeah. but I also don't get why, because there's no origin story for this creature, so you don't get why Anna has become possessed or why she's become obsessed with this thing. And I like that. I think it gives, like, a weird... Um, like mystical kind of air to the film of like we don't have to get into the backstory of the creature to understand that something's happening with her. It like focuses the movie on her experience more. Right, and I will say this, and I don't know if it if the, I don't know if this again is a spoiler or not. I don't really think it is, but I think part of what makes this movie very memorable to people is that she is having sex with this creature, mm-hmm. and. I mean, it is, there, there are times you're like, holy shit. Like, you're just like, wow. And in the famous scene of her in the subway, which I'm sure if you went on YouTube, if you've never seen it or you don't know what I'm talking about, go on YouTube and you will just Google possession subway scene and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a moment where she is in the subway and it is, I, I assume she is miscarrying maybe some kind of offspring from this creature. Yeah, Yeah. that's how she conceptualizes it. And look, I lived in New York City for several years, (laughs) and seeing something like this is a regular fucking scenario in the subway. (laughs) You You definitely see people smash gallons of milk against the wall. Oh, hell yeah. There have been so many moments where I'm like, is this person possessed and miscarrying a demon baby or what? Like, oh, just yeah. screaming and flailing and, yeah. Oh, yeah. This, I mean, like, I feel like it's been, like I said, there's been a lot of homages to it. Like, it, like I think that there's been a few bands that have, like, used this scene as part of their music videos. I feel like one of them was, like, Rosman Pike or somebody played the Anna character. Uh, I think it's, like, a Massive Attack song or something. But anyway, um... This scene, I think, alone is what draws people to the film. Like, because they're just like, what the hell is going on? And Isabel Algiani in this moment is, I mean, she is possessed as an actress. Like, she is possessed by some something to 
I mean, her physicality in this scene is so unreal. And, I mean, I, I, like you said, she I would have had to take, like, a really long vacation after I did this one scene, let alone yeah. the entire movie. I mean, it's like this one scene. She gave everything. This is after so. she took a fucking electric knife to her throat and, like... Yeah. All kinds of shit has already happened in this film. And then yeah. she goes real heavy in this scene. And it's what's... I like... I, it's disturbing, naturally, but it's also... Yeah. Um, you know, once you know that the director was kind of writing through his own divorce, you're like, hmm, shades of misogyny here, maybe? Mm. That, like, mm. the only way a woman could leave you is if she's fucking possessed. Uh, <laughs> but... Certainly a part of the conversation. I mean, it's been talked about, so, And you then know. you see this scene and you're like, but then, you again, like, you can't help but react to the physicality of Isabella Johnny in this scene um, because it doesn't feel... There's a moment where it kind of feels overwrought, but it goes on for so long that you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, what's going to happen? Like, it, it, she kind of takes it over the top yeah. um, and moves it from a place where it could be pure farce to just being very um, disturbing and interesting and, like, tense. Yeah. Because I think Isabel Algiani at this moment, she she was very, like, long-limbed. She kind of, she, she, you know, there's this, I think that there was a sequence. It might have been cut from one of the... Um, versions but where she's a, a ballet instructor <laughs> and you you do feel like she has that kind of ballet dancer's body she's got a, she's very fawn like you know very long limbs and so when you see her you know physical presence like that doing this stuff in the subway especially like towards the end where she's just literally sitting in a pile of yeah viscera <laughs> alien <ooze>. viscera <laughs> You're just like, it's you're just completely shocked by it. And like I said, I mean, I brought this one to the table this week because, again, like we're talking about Valentine's Day. We're talking about couples. You've never seen a divorce movie as hardcore as this. I guarantee it. But, you know, to me, it's it's it is one of the most visually arresting movies I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I cannot stop thinking about it. Even now that it's become kind of a cult classic and lots of people talk about it, lots of people reference it, you know, it, it, it has come a long way from like my college days where no one could see it and no one knew what the fuck it was to this. Like, I think it's gotten its flowers in a weird way. Yeah. But um, I, I, I can't shake it. And, and I've seen it probably like eight or nine times. I mean, you know, I had to watch it a bunch to write the book. So I was like... I don't know. Even to this day, it still hits. Like, I'm telling you, I watched that director's cut like two nights ago and I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, this movie is all the way up, truly. But it does not stop going hard, that's for sure. Well, and like, and then I'm saying this, like, on top of the fact that Sam Neill looks like he's in Joy Division. Like, it's a very like early 80s like style. I mean, it's like everyone's looking real cute. Like, there's a lot of like Great outfits, great looks. Like I said, Sam Sammy looks like he's in like a kraut rock band or something. You know what I mean? And like it, it's just so so there's a lot a lot of reasons why people find it so memorable. But honestly, like yeah. I mean, if you're going through something, if you're going through a breakup and you watch possession, I don't know. If you're not going through a breakup, if you've just met someone special. And this is your first Valentine's Day together and you watch Possession with them? I feel like, I, I don't want to say it like implicitly, but you might be like 
my kind of people. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, that was fantastic as always. Yeah. What a double feature. What a double feature. And happy Valentine's Day, y'all. Happy Valentine's Day. We love you, of course. Um, all right. So if you want to email us for any reason, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Um, again, send us questions for the bonus episodes because that's what we do on those bonus. And now everybody can hear them. So you might you might be featured on a bonus if you write. And you can also find us on our socials. We are at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's right. We have merch as well. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right shop to find our merch. And our bonus episodes. We have new bonus episodes are dropping on the main feed now every third Thursday of the month. Plus, the old bonus episodes are going to be slowly trickling into your main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. That's right. Well, listen, we do not have an episode next week. But, Danielle, would you like to give them the films for the week after? I will. Our films next for the week after are Sounder from 1972 and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter from 1968. And if you can believe it, that episode is going to be our 100th episode. Whoa! Holy shit! 100 episodes, 200 movies that we have made y'all watch. <laughs> oh my God, 200 films. My goodness. Well, I, we, we'll definitely have some fun. And um, yeah, we really appreciate all of you guys. Danielle, always a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Every single week. Love it. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.